is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. you. Well, it's great to see all of you here on a Monday night. How many of you were here yesterday? Would you wave at me just a second? Thank you for coming back. How many of you are joining us this evening? Would you raise your hand? That's very good. Oh, we're happy that you made it in, and uh, Mondays can be challenging days. How many of you had a long day today? I'm just curious. How many of you had a long week today? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. Let's do something before I speak. Would you like to hear something good tonight? How many of you would like to hear something good tonight? All right, then don't wait on me. I'm serious about that. You know, people come to church, and they, they become spectators. They come in, they plop down in their seat, and they sit back, <laughs> almost at least figuratively, they cross their arms and look at the guy on the platform like, all right, big boy, tell us something we've never heard before. But I want you to know, when God's people gather together, the Bible says we're to be exhorting one another. There have been a lot of church services that I was in that I don't remember what the preacher preached. What do you think of that? And some of them I was doing the preaching, so that's pretty bad, you know. But what I remember is some saint of God said some good word that encouraged my faith and spoke a, a word of encouragement to me. And that is something all of us can do. Here's what I've learned. See, the law of sowing and reaping works for everything. So if you'll come into a meeting like this saying, by the grace of God tonight, I'm not coming just to get, I'm coming to give. I'm going to be a blessing. Here's what you'll find. The Lord brings that back to you. So let's take a survey, church. How many of you would like the blessing tonight? Would you raise your hand? All right, then I'm going to let you give one right now. All right? I'm going to let you preach tonight. I think everybody ought to have to preach one sermon in their life. Don't you think so, Pastor? Just to look at what we get to look at all the time, you know? And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. That's all you got. It's going to be a short sermon. But in 60 seconds, I want you to tell somebody near you something good about the Lord. And if you can't think of anything else, your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life in Heaven. I'd say that's pretty good. What do you think? So when I say go, you're going to go. When I say stop, you're going to stop. And if you don't participate, I'm going to bring you to the platform and let you tell everybody something good. All right? So let's all of God's children do it. Ready? On your mark, get set, go. Tell somebody right now something good the Lord's done in your life. Amen, amen. Praise God. You know, from my vantage point, now from my vantage point, it's amazing. People's whole countenance changes. And you've got to think from God's vantage point what he sees. I'm telling you, God's people ought to be ready and willing to speak a good word for Jesus. I really believe that. Do you believe that? Let the redeemed of the Lord what? Good, so let's do it again, all right? Find somebody else. You can't talk to the same person. We might just do this all night. Who knows? I'm serious. I'm serious as I can be. Find you somebody else right now and tell them one good thing about the Lord. Ready? Go right now. Tell somebody else something good the Lord has done in your life. Wonderful. Now make your way back towards home, would you please? When the meeting's done tonight, it may be the worst sermon you've ever heard in your life. But you can at least say, I tell you one thing, I met a happy Christian tonight. 
Somebody told me something good about the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Let's open the word of God together. We need to hear what God wants to say to us tonight. If we're going to seek his heart, we've got to seek his heart through his word. Let's open our Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes, would you please? And those of you that are here on the Lord's, they're not at all surprised by that. In fact, would you like to guess what chapter we're going to tonight? Very good. Ecclesiastes chapter number three. We're going to pick up right where we left off. You know, the word of God is amazing. It really is amazing. I, I preach out different books, you know, week by week by week. I have favorites. Philippians is my favorite. I think I told you that yesterday, Book of Christian Joy. Uh, Brother Kaiser, one of our teachers, used to say his favorite was whichever one he was preaching from at the time. That's a pretty good answer because it's all the Word of God. How many of you have a favorite? I'm just curious. You've got a favorite. Shout it out. One, two, three. That's a good book, whatever you said, all right? It's from the Bible. I heard a lot of Psalms back there, and uh, that's, that's a favorite of a lot of people. Interestingly enough, Ecclesiastes is right close to Psalms. It's in what we call the heart books of the Bible, and it's in the heart of the Bible. If you look at your Bible, unless you have a lot of study helps in the back, probably you're somewhere in the middle of Scripture. In fact, you know what the middle verse of the Bible is? The middle verse of the Bible is found in the Psalms. It is the verse that says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. That's a pretty good middle verse, don't you think? Like the anchor of the whole thing. Well, Ecclesiastes is one of these wisdom books. It's a book of poetry, and frankly, it's a sad poem. Because it is the perspective of a man who lived his life void of the presence of God. I have a friend, Charles Keene, that says the loneliest place in the world for a preacher is in the pulpit without the presence of God. I want to say amen to that. But might I say, that's not just true of preachers. No, the loneliest people on earth are not lost people. Let that sink in just a moment. People say, I tell you, these lost people, they're the most miserable people on earth. No, they're not the most miserable people on earth because they don't even know what they're missing out on. The most miserable, lonely souls on earth are people like Solomon who know God but have chosen to live without his smile upon their life. Here's a man that had God's wisdom. God gave it to him. Think of the gifts God gave this man and what does he do with it? He squanders it and he lives under the sun, S-U-N, life on earth apart from God. No wonder the man said vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I'm going to tell you why. Because the emptiest person on earth is the person that has known the joy of the Lord and is empty of it at this moment. And so we return to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's review just a second. From verse 1 down to verse number 10 we got a little perspective on time, and we live in time, and we understand the, the extremes of time, 30 times the word time is used, 14 extremes, the pendulum swings from one side to the other. In verse number 11, we talked about eternity. He sets the world, literally eternity, in their heart. Tonight, I want to pick up with verse 11 again and read down, if I may, to the end of the chapter. I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 11. Solomon writes, He, that is God, hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there's no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Time out just a second, class. Would you look at me just for a minute? There is a truth here, but it's not the whole truth. How many of you think we need the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? The truth that God gives us richly all things to enjoy, that is true. Every good gift comes down from above. The, the truth that God gives us food and God gives us water and God gives us all of the material provisions we have, aren't you glad for every good thing God has given us? But that is not all there is. Remember, this is the Spirit-inspired utterance of a man who was recording correctly the incorrect way of living. And so look at it. In verse number 12, he, he, he talks about moralism. He said, I'm just going to try to do good, and you do good. We talk about the do-gooders, you know. And they think, if I can just do good. You know, it, it's pretty hard to have good without God, isn't it? Because there's nothing good in any of us. 
And then in verse number 13, you've got materialism. He says, let's just eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all our labor. It is the gift of God. I want to tell you something. There's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this, and there is. Look at verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. In other words, just another way of saying, no new thing under the sun. People say history repeats itself. Uh, same old, same old. We use lots of colloquial expressions. Same principle. Solomon said it. We live it. Look at verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Would you take your pen and circle the word wickedness and the word iniquity in verse 16 and connect the two in your Bible? It's the exact same word. It is the word for lawlessness. And look at that verse carefully. He said, there is lawlessness in the place where there should be judgment. There is lawlessness in the place where there should be righteousness. How many of you think that sounds like the news in our world right now? Injustice, inequity, people are supposed to be doing right or doing wrong, people are supposed to be in charge or leading people astray. I'm telling you, we are in a mess. And every now and then people say to me, I tell you, preacher, it's never been this bad before, and I want to say, you better buy a history book. That's what you should do. Because all through history, you find the same departure from truth. When you reject truth, you believe lies. When you say no to light, you plunge into darkness. That's where this man is living. And he's describing the world we're living in. Keep reading verse 17. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Everybody remember in verse 2 down to verse number 7 or verse 8, a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. He comes down to verse number 17. He said, I think there's going to be a time for judgment someday. I think someday God is going to bring all of us and all of that into his holy presence. It's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. Somebody say, come on, preacher, tell us some funny jokes tonight and, and, and make us laugh and entertain us. I, I fear that we've got a church laughing its way towards eternity and a lost world laughing its way to hell. And what we need right now, friends, is not levity and lightness. What we need right now is some seriousness and soberness in light of eternity. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Here we go again. Here we go again. There's a measure of truth here, but it's not the whole truth. The measure of truth is that every living thing dies. So dogs die. And people die. That's what he says. But I want you to know, they are not the same thing. Because when the animal dies, his body goes back to the dust of the ground. But when a living soul dies, that spirit returns to God who gave it. Friends, I want you to know, this is not all there is. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through here for a little while. Look at verse number 20. All go unto one place. All are of the dust. And all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? I'd answer that question. God knows. Verse 22, Wherefore I perceive that there's nothing better, nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. I want to cry out. I want to scream at him and say, No, there is something better. Jesus is better than everything. Hebrews is the answer to Ecclesiastes, you see. Christ is better. I was pondering this today. Who was Solomon's daddy? Talk to me just a minute. Who was his daddy? Think of all the psalms that David wrote. Psalms of confession of sin and psalms that have full of worship and the presence of God and psalms full of thanksgiving and psalms full of prophecy. And I would say, show me what Solomon wrote. Because for all of his wisdom, there seems to be so little worship, so little God in the man. In the closing words of chapter 3, 
For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Would you mark the little word after? There is something after this life. There is something after this world. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. You do remember chapter divisions are not inspired, right? I'm glad we have them. We'd all still be looking for Ecclesiastes 3 right now, but... Uh, they, they came a few hundred years ago. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. I want to say, what a picture of the world we're living in. What a snapshot of our society. What, what a little glimpse into our culture. Behold the tears. Look at weeping people. Look at broken families. and Look at wounded souls. And look at hurting hearts and there's no comforter. Nobody can bring the comfort that only Jesus can bring. Do you understand you can preach from the Old Testament and still be a New Testament preacher? Because only Christ, the one who is greater than Solomon, can bring the comfort. Tonight, I want you to take your pen and mark something in your Bible, if you will, and found repeatedly here in the verses that we've read, back up in chapter 3 to verse number 11, I want you to mark the phrase at the end of verse 11, the work that God maketh. The work that God maketh. There's a difference here between man's labor and God's work. How many of you know the devil has a work? We're seeing it, aren't we? And men have their work. How many of you went to work today? How many of you got anything done today? How many of you are sorry I brought it up? All right. Yeah. So the devil has his work, man has his work. But I want you to know there's no work like the work of God. So mark that phrase, the work that God maketh. Then come down to verse 14 and mark this, whatsoever God doeth. Isn't that an interesting expression? God maketh, God doeth. At the end of the same verse, verse 14, would you mark this phrase, God doeth it. And one more time in verse 17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And for a few moments tonight, I'd like to speak to you on this subject. What in the world is God doing? What in the world is God doing? There's so many things that we do not understand. Here's the wisest man that ever lived. Come on, Solomon, pull up a chair. Let's have a little interview here. Tell us everything you've learned. And he, he can tell you about business and economy, and he can tell you about family. I mean, good night. The man had a 1,000 wives and women at his house. He could tell you about family and some of the struggle and stress and strain there. And, and he's a botanist and a zoologist and, and an explorer and, and a military champion. He's an architect. I mean, this is a smart guy, and yet... There's some things he said, I just, I'm sorry. I, I can't tell you that. Do you understand that the God of the Bible is the infinite God? What does that mean? It means there's no limit to him. The longer I live, the more I realize there's a limit to me, but there's, praise God, there's no limit to God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are unsearchable. What does that mean? It means... You can plunge the deepest ocean, but God is deeper than all of that. You can, you can go to the highest star. I stood in eastern Virginia a few nights ago preaching and had gotten back to the place where I was staying and got out of my car to go in. It was very dark outside, and it was the clearest night, and I stood there for about five minutes. It's been a long time since I'd done that. We get in such a hurry, don't we? Every now and then we just need to stop and look up. And I stood there for about five minutes just gazing up into the sky and looking at all the stars and the constellations, and it dawned on me as amazing, as awe-inspiring as all of that is, God just says, oh, yeah, and I made the stars also, like it was an afterthought, you know, like, like that's just an extra for you. What a mighty God we have. And I must stand with Solomon tonight and tell you, I don't know all that God is doing. Everywhere I go, people want to talk to me about world affairs and uh, what's going on in churches and what's going on in our country and all that kind of thing. And Christians have questions too, amen, to that church. And I, I get on airplanes a lot and in public places with lots of lost people. And uh, airplanes are the best. You know, when people find out they're sitting next to a preacher at 30,000 feet, it's very interesting. They're either really happy that they're sitting next to you or really wish they weren't, one of the two. And I've had some amazing conversations because everybody's trying to figure out what is going on in this world. What, what is God doing in this world? Even Hollywood's getting in on it. The other day, I, 
my seat got moved on a plane, and I do believe in divine appointments, and a man came and sat down next to me, and he wasn't dressed up at all, kind of dressed down, to be honest with you, and, and I struck a conversation with him, tried to talk to him about his soul, and found out that he is a producer of Christian movies. In fact, a very famous one that has just come out recently. He's the man who produced the movie. And I said, tell me about it. Tell me about your work and tell me about what you're doing. And, and he said to me, he said, you know, there's a real interest right now in our world. There's a real interest right now in our culture. People are asking questions and they're seeking and they're trying to find answers. He's exactly right about that. For the record, I'd recommend you not try to find the answers in a movie. I'd recommend you try to find the answer in the Word of God. What in the world is God doing? Let me give you a handful of things tonight. They all come from our text. In fact, they come from the four places here that I had you mark in your Bible. Would you look at them? First in verse number 11, I want you to write this down. God is doing something. Boy, that's profound, isn't it? I mean by that, God is at work. Look at verse number 11, the work that God maketh. Oh, I love this. Do you believe, do you all believe here every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God? I mean, like God didn't use fillers and every word's there on purpose and nothing's there by accident. Look at the verse, please. I'm going to read verse 11. Every time I stop, you say the next word out loud and mark it. Look at verse number 11. He hath everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God I want you to mark in the first part of verse 11 the word made and the last part of verse 11 the word maketh. And notice the subtle but important shift here. He talks about God's past tense work, but now he talks about God's present tense work. Oh, I like this a whole lot. Do you believe God made the whole world, yes or no? Do you believe that the God of Genesis 1 and 2 just spoke it all into existence? We preachers get pretty artistic, you know. He flung the stars in space and carved out the Grand Canyon and rivers with his fingers. That's not what he did. He just spoke, and it was so, and it was very good. That's the power of the Word of God. But I got good news for you. The Creator is the sustainer. The God who was, is. The God who has, is at work at this moment. God has not left us to ourselves. The Maker is still making at this present moment. He's not making any more world. Oh, he's making a place for us to live someday, but he's not making any more here, but he's making more for us in the future. He's not making any more scripture because we have the finished written revelation of God. Nobody adds to it. Nobody takes away from it. But I'm glad to report to you tonight that the creator is making a new creation and the miraculous work of the creator God goes on at this present hour. There's a whole lot of things I don't know, but this I know for sure. God is doing something in this world at this time. In fact, here's what I know about my God. I know that God always continues and finishes what he starts. So look at the second truth. In verse number 14, I know that whatsoever, that's a big word, isn't it? God doeth, it shall be forever. Write a second truth down. Well, what in the world is God doing? Number one, God's doing something. He's at work in this world at this present hour. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't explain it. You can't always understand it. But he is at work. Here's a second truth. Whatever God is doing, he's doing for his eternal purpose. Men make things and then they break. And we make really nice things. And they're gone in a moment. The young evangelist that works with us in our ministry uh, he and his precious wife and two children, uh, they, they're just great people, great Christians. Somebody called me today to ask about them, how they were doing. Just great people, full of the joy of the Lord. And last week, their house burned to the ground. Uh, just everything gone in a moment. Uh, Chase travels like I do, and it was just of God. He was home. He was home the other night. Could have been gone. He wasn't. He was home. He woke up in the middle of the night, thought he smelled something. Got up, walked through the house, didn't see anything turned to go back to bed and it had snowed and snow had blanketed his front yard and he just looked out the front window and glistening off the snow he could see flames his roof was on fire he had enough time to get joy and the two little children and grab just a couple of things very little and walk out in the snow and stand there and watch his house burn to the ground it's pretty tough isn't it I talked to him earlier today 
He said, you know, I've been thinking about something. He said, uh, everybody been encouraging and loving on them and trying to help them. And he said, but a lot of people have said to me, well, you have what matters most. You, you have your family. And he said, I've been thinking a lot about that. He said, you know, they're exactly right. When something like this happens, it just reminds you again that all that stuff doesn't really matter because none of that's going to last forever. Anyhow, what matters is what is connected to eternity. Do you know the name John Livingston? John Livingston was David Livingston's brother. He was a famous attorney. He was a wealthy man. And when he died, they asked John Livingston on his deathbed, what would you like on your grave marker? I mean, he was a well-accomplished man in his own right. He said, I only want you to put one thing under my name. Under my name, I want you to put, here lies the brother of David Livingston. You know why that is? Because the closer you get to seeing God, the more you realize the only thing that really matters is what's connected to God. And I came to tell you tonight that your work could be temporal, but God's work is eternal. And the God of the Bible is not distant. He is near. He is not passive. He is active. And at this moment, God is doing his eternal work. Read the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's taking out of this world a people for his name. He's saving people. Why do you think he's still here? There's only one reason why Jesus has not returned. He's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are still lost souls that Jesus... Jesus Christ is trying to bring into the fold. Christ is building his church and God is at work in this world. And the work of God is not to make this world a better place from which people can go to hell. The work of God is not to make our lives a little more comfortable and convenient. The work of God is not for us to just enjoy our American prosperity. The work of God is to make a difference for eternity. Let me tell you what God is doing. God is being glorified. It may not look like it right now. Have you watched the news? I, I turned the news on before I came to the meeting tonight. Probably shouldn't have done that. How many of you have watched the news recently? And it gets a little depressing at times, and you hear all this going on in the world. I just want to tell you something. God is still in control of it all, and people say, what is this world coming to? Adrian Rogers said, it's coming to Jesus. That's what it's coming to. Soon every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Excuse me, every president, every prime minister, every potentate, every senator, every House of Representative member, every governor and every mayor, every blasphemer and every Hollywood actor will kneel at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus Christ and profess that he is who he said he was. I tell you on the authority of the word of God, what God is doing is going to last forever. It's not what you can buy with money. It's not what you can build with hands. It's not what you can gather into bank accounts and store in houses. That is not what matters. What matters is what God is doing. And I would imagine in this room right now, there's some people wondering, what is God doing in my life? Did you know the word why is found 430 times in the Bible? It's not unspiritual to ask why. It really isn't. I've heard preachers preach, don't ask why. Jesus asked why. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now watch, on this side of the cross, we know the answer to the why. Vance Havner said, over some days of your life, God simply writes these words, we'll explain later. I like that. There's some things I can't tell you why. I can't explain to you why bad things happen to good people and why things don't turn out. I can't explain all that. Here's what I know. God is doing something, and everything God is doing is for his eternal purpose. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. He is not just the author. Oh, no, my friend. He is the finisher of our faith. There's a third truth. Look at verse number 14 at the end of it. He says, God doeth it that. Mm, what a purpose statement. Men should fear before him. Number three, would you write this down? What in the world is God doing? God's doing something. God's doing something eternal. Number three, everything God is doing is for the purpose of bringing men to himself. Isn't that interesting? God is not doing something just to do something. God is doing something to draw men to himself. That's fascinating to me. To think that a God so big he fills up eternity would be so loving that he would care about me. To think that a God so great he holds the universe in the palm of his hand and looks at all of it.
would be so personal that he would come to live in our hearts. What a God. God is at work right now. You want to know what God's doing in your life? You say, preacher, tell me what God. I'm going to tell everybody in this room what God's doing in your life right now. God's trying to draw you closer to himself. Stop letting that thing in your life be a wedge between you and God and realize it's supposed to be a prod to drive you closer to God. People start having problems. I don't understand it. They start having problems. They do the exact opposite of what they ought to do. They start running away from the Lord. People start struggling a little bit. They start missing church. People start having a hard time. First thing they do is neglect the word and prayer. Look, friends, that's not the time to drift. This is no time to drift. This is the time to get as close to God as you possibly can. Don't run away from the Lord. Run to the Lord. Look at the verse. He said, God wants men to something. What does it say? To fear him. Someone said, hold up, preacher, to fear? I mean, that sounds pretty harsh. Oh, no. Anybody remember what Solomon wrote in a previous book? The fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I submit to you the fear of the Lord is the beginning of every good thing. Every good thing begins with the fear of God. You want to know what's wrong in our world right now? Romans chapter 3, verse number 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now hold on to your seat. I'm going to tell you what's wrong in churches right now. Christian people don't fear God anymore. They don't fear God. God's Mr. Fix-It, Mr. Handyman, 911, slot machine religion. God's there for our comfort and for our enjoyment. I want you to know that the God of the universe is high and holy and exalted, and God's people ought to fear before him. There ought to still be some tremble in our hearts about being in the presence of the thrice holy God. There, there still ought to be a little soberness about the fact we're going to meet God someday and give an account of our lives. Whatever happened to the fear of God in our world today? A few years ago, I was having lunch with an elderly man and his wife who had been in a part of the world generations ago, decades ago now, where they really saw a touch of revival. I mean a real spiritual awakening, like most of us have never seen in our lifetime. And I was quizzing them about it. And finally, I said to this elderly couple, and I'll never forget this conversation, I said, well, do you think we could ever have that kind of spiritual awakening and real revival in our generation? And I'll never forget this. It wasn't the husband that spoke up this time. The wife sat up in her chair and leaned across the table. She said, would you like to know why we haven't had it? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, because people have lost the fear of God. We want to be made to feel better. We don't need to fear, feel better. We need to fear God. A tickle up our spine and a spiritual euphoria, some emotional high. That's, that's not what we need. What we need is to be broken over our sin and to see God for who he is. I tell you, every miracle God ever did had a message in it. And every problem has a purpose. And every trial has a truth. And every gift has a goal. And every struggle has a spiritual aim. And everything God is doing in this world is to reveal himself to man and draw those people to himself. And I wonder, do you fear the Lord? It's easy to spot other people's sin, isn't it? I can spot yours at 100 yards and tell you all about it. But my own, do I fear God? People say, well, I thought we were supposed to love the Lord. We, you listen to me very carefully. Fear and love are connected in Scripture. In fact, they're really used interchangeably with the fear of God and the love of God. I submit to you, a man can never love God until first he fears God. You can't enjoy intimacy with God until first you humble yourself and realize you are nothing and God is everything. Fear is the doorway that leads to the love. If you ask me, if you ask me, uh, do, do you fear your wife? This one's got potential. She's not here, all right? Now, you don't know my wife, but your pastor and his wife do. She's meek and kind and quiet and gentle, and, and I'm the talker of the family, if that surprises you, and she's the more behind-the-scenes one. And uh, no, I, I'm not scared to death of her. I mean, she's, she's never chased me through the house with a baseball bat, and I've never been awakened with her standing over with a knife at night, not yet at least. Praise God for that. But may I tell you, at this stage in our married life, there is a certain fear I do have. I'm going to tell you what it is. I fear hurting her. 
I fear doing something and her being ashamed she ever married me. For 25 years, I fear that I could do something to bring such reproach to our family name that it would bring shame to her. You know what that is? I'm going to tell you what that is. That's the fear that is connected to love. Watch this, please. It is not fear that she will hurt me. It is fear that I will hurt her. Even when I say fear of God, you know what people think? Oh, yeah, God's going to get me. Friend, if God's going to get you, he'd have done it a long time ago. I mean, honestly, if we were God, we'd squash each other like bugs every day. Isn't that right? Think how merciful and long-suffering and patient and gracious and good and kind and loving our God is. Bless his holy name. Look, I'm not afraid God's going to hurt me. I'm afraid that I could start living my life so with a manward perspective and under the sun and neglect eternity and God that after a while, my life is hurting the God who loved me so much he sacrificed his son for me. What in the world is God doing? He's, got, he's doing something. He's at work in this world. He's, he's doing something for eternity. He's doing something to bring men to himself. Let me give you one more. Would you look down to verse 17? I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Would you write this down? All that God is doing now is leading up to what he will do. See, what God is really going to do just around the corner is the most sobering thing. God's going to judge his people. In fact, would you do something? I want you to mark in verse 15 the word now. That's where we live. That which hath been is now. Do you see that word? We're living in the now. Then underline the last word of verse 15, past. So you've got the past, you've got the present. And then come down, please, to verse number 17, and I want you to mark this word, shall. Would you write that down? Shall. What's that? That's the future. Someday, judgment is going to bring lawlessness to an end. Someday, God is going to bring, look at the verse, please, carefully, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. That's my phone ringing. It'll be all right. They'll call back, all right? The righteous and the wicked before him. Look me in the eye just a moment, would you please? If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I want you to know you're going to stand before a holy God at the great white throne judgment, and on that day you are going to give an account of your sin and your soul and your rejection of the gospel, and on that day it will be too late. We had some people here yesterday and some even when they got home yesterday, it settled some things about the soul salvation. I give God glory and praise for that. I'm going to tell you, this is not the time to live wondering and worrying where you're going to spend eternity. This is not the day to have a question mark. You need to bring that question mark to God. Let the Lord Jesus straighten it out, make it an exclamation point. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. You drive a stake a mile deep in the ground about your soul salvation. But I want you to know, if you're a believer, how many saved people are here? Would you wave at me, please? Oh, you saved people. You've got a day coming too, friends. It's the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought God had assigned an angel to me with a video camera. And you're laughing because you did too. And he followed me around everywhere I went and videotaped every bad thing I'd ever done. And I had this mental picture of the judgment seat of Christ. This giant screen would fall down. And he was going to replay every bad thing I'd ever done. And everybody, all my family, friends, everybody that I loved was going to be there, right there with me. And I was going to be totally humiliated and embarrassed because they were all going to see what God already knew. And I started studying my Bible and found out it's much worse than that. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, it won't be you and everybody else. It's going to be you and a holy God. And at that moment, you're going to know that God knows everything. And that judgment, that judgment's not about our, our sin or our soul or our eternal destiny. Our salvation's been settled. Our sins already been judged at the cross of Christ. Praise God for that. But I'll tell you what it will be. It will be the judgment of our service, what we did and what we failed to do. And as I've meditated on this passage of Scripture, I've come to this conclusion. I think we're asking the wrong question. I think we're asking the wrong question. The question we're all asking is, what in the world is God doing? 
I think this is the right question. You ready? In light of what God is doing, what in the world should we be doing? Why are we here? Why has he left us? Why hasn't he returned yet? Why? What will you say when you kneel before him? I'm going to tell you, the last day's church is going to have a whole lot to give an account for. Can you imagine us standing before the Lord and telling him how difficult it was to serve him in our day because the culture was really negative? Imagine kneeling next to one of the martyrs. What excuse shall we give? What shall we do, people? Today, over lunch, we talked a little bit about my friend and fellow laborer who a few months ago was, was killed in the Middle East. I've been very careful about what I say, especially publicly and things still going on there. Stephen was like a brother to me. We talked two or three times a day. I talked to him about 20 minutes before he died. He and his beautiful family serving the Lord. He just wanted people to know Jesus. That's all. Just wanted people to know Jesus. In a moment of time, his life just taken from him. Too early, we say, God knows what he's doing. I was sitting in a hotel room on a conference call when Jocelyn called me and said to me, I think he's gone. She was right there with him when his life was taken. I've had some time now to start to process. Some things, it takes a long time to process, but he was a year younger than me, 45, four children. And I must tell you, over the last few months, I've asked several times quietly, privately, what in the world, God? Why? What, what in the world are you doing in this? And the Lord keeps taking me back to the last conversation I had with him. Literally, less than half an hour before he met Jesus. We were talking about a gospel project and some things that we were working on and I was telling him about something that had happened. He was so excited. He was so enthused about it all. I mean, he like just came to the phone. I think the last words he said to me before we hung up were, I love you. I'm praying for you. But one of the last things he said to me before we concluded our call, not knowing it would be the last time we'd speak this side of eternity, my friend said to me, Scott, we just have to do more. And that just keeps ringing in my ears. Because in 20 minutes, he's going to see Jesus. My friend can do no more. Oh, his life lives on, his testimony, his work. But his time's done. But I'm still here. And I think I'm still here because there's something more God wants me to do. And I'm looking tonight at a church that you're doing well. I commend you. I congratulate you. I said to a, a pastor friend today on the phone, tell him about the church. He said, it's amazing what the Lord's done there in just 10, 11 years. I said, it is amazing. But I want to ask this church, is this it? I mean, this is it, so now we're going to shift into neutral and coast to glory? Or are we going to say by the grace of God, no, we're going to do everything God left us here to do. We want to go to the next level for the Lord. I'm looking at families tonight. I mean, look, we're just going to have life and pay the bills and take vacation and live our lives. No, no. What are we going to do for eternity? What are we supposed to be doing right now? I'm talking to people of all ages in here tonight. I'm saying to you, uh, this season of your life could be the most fruitful season yet if it was really given to God. What on earth has God left us here to do? And I leave you with the words of my friend. We must do more. We must do more to get the gospel out. We must do more. We must do more to get people in. We must do more. You live in a lovely place. A lovely place. I've been around town a little bit. It's beautiful. Took a little run this afternoon. By the way, thanks for bringing spring today. I really appreciate it. Beautiful place. Filled with lost souls. 
had a conversation with a woman at the hotel. She's a spiritual woman. She's not a saved woman. She needs Jesus. They're everywhere. But down the road from this church, they're across the street from where you live. They're on your job and your school campus. Uh, they were at the restaurant you ate at today. They, they pull up next to you at the gas pump this afternoon. They're everywhere. And I think sometimes while we're so busy trying to figure out what God's doing, we've forgotten what we're supposed to be doing. We're kind of like the disciples gazing up in heaven and saying, oh Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And the Lord says, not for you to know that right now. Here's what it's time for you to do. You receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Go be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Look, God's going to do what he's supposed to do. Don't worry about what God's doing. You take care of what you're supposed to do. And I came to ask you tonight, what is the thing God wants you to do? It would be different for every person in this room. But I tell you tonight, there is some step of obedience and faith every one of us must take. And watch this. Oh, this is wonderful. When you do what God tells you to do, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see God do something that only God can do. That is what in this world God is doing. Father, I pray tonight somehow, some way, for the glory of our God, you will awaken us, Lord, to where we are, to whose we are, and to what we need to be doing. Awaken the sleeping church, Lord, and touch this world. Our heads are bowed and we sit quietly, reverently before God. God always has the last day and God always has the last say. But we still have our moment. We must not miss our moment. How many of you know you're saved and you're happy about it? Would you lift a holy hand to God right now? Are you glad to be saved? Praise his holy name. May I ask, I must ask, is there someone tonight that would say, Preacher, I'm not certain I'm saved, but I know I don't want to be lost. I don't want to be separated from God because of my sin. Preacher, I don't have that kind of assurance that I have a real relationship with the Lord, but I need that. I need Him. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand with mine long enough for me to see it and then pull it right back down and say, Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to be saved. I need the Lord to save me. Best I can tell, I'm speaking to Christians, so let's get down to business, church, all right? Let's just get right to the bottom line tonight. I'm going to ask two simple questions, one on the negative side and one on the positive. Here's the first. How many believers in this room tonight would say, Preacher, there's something in my life I don't want to meet God with like it is right now. There's something that I need to confess to the Lord, forsake, yield, surrender, dedicate. There's something in my life I really need to just give to God to be ready to meet him. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now, would you please, all over the room. God bless you. I'm going to ask you to tell God that in just a minute. I'm going to ask you to be specific with him and call it by name. Let's turn it inside out now. Because the Bible says, Him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Do you understand that what we leave undone may be the greatest sin? You know the worst thing about sin? Not what you get, what you miss. Think what we're missing because of our lack of obedience. How many Christians in this room tonight would say, Preacher, I realize it's not just about me going to heaven and my family being saved. I realize God's left me here to be a part of his work, to connect my life and my labor to his eternal purpose. Preacher, I want God to use me to reach someone for Christ. I I don't want to just go to heaven. I want to take some people with me. And tonight, I want to ask God to use me while I still have life in my body and breath and can do something for the Lord to use me right where I am to help get the gospel out and get people in. Preacher, count me in on that. I want God to use me. Would you raise your hand with mine right now all over this room? Thank God for that. Here's where we're going to do it tonight. I want you to listen carefully. I'm not being funny. I really am not. May I ask, how many of you can kneel? I mean by that you can get down on your knees and get back up again. We take a lot for granted, don't we, that we can't do it. How many of you can physically kneel? Would you raise your hand with mine right now? Yeah. 
Did you know in the Bible when you see people really seeking the Lord, that's what we're doing, we're seeking Him. Not just saying prayers, we're seeking the Lord. When you see people seeking the Lord in the Bible, their posture is interesting because you really don't see them lounging around in the presence of God. In fact, the two prominent postures of prayer in Scripture are on our face or on our feet. Now, there are some tonight who can't do either. I want you to know God knows your heart. You can pray right where you are. But in the Bible, people either got on their knees, on their faces in the presence of a holy God, or they stood to their feet in reverence like they were in the presence of the king, you see, in the throne room. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're not going to have any music, not a single song, so that all of us can pray, and the only sound in the room will be the sound of people talking to God. And here's what I'm going to ask. In just a moment, I'm going to begin a prayer. And I'm not going to say amen because I'm not ending it. I'm just starting it. And when I pause, I'm going to ask every man, woman, boy, girl, teenager in this room that knows God has spoken to you about something on one side or the other of this. If God's really talked to you tonight, I'm going to ask you to talk to him. And here's what I'm going to ask. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and get on your knees. You can leave your place and come kneel in this altar. You can turn around and make your seat the altar. You can get out in the aisle and kneel in the aisle. But I'm going to ask you in a moment, if you're physically able, to get on your knees, humble yourself physically and publicly before the Lord and talk to God about what God's been talking to you about. And if you cannot kneel in just a moment, then I'm going to invite you to stand so that all over this room, we make the whole place one giant altar all over this room, on our face or on our feet, for a few moments, we talk to the God who is the judge of all the earth. We're going to see him soon, people. We're all getting ready to meet God. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.